in the sanctuary. If you would please turn over to Psalm 55. Psalm 55. Psalm 55, beginning in verse 1. For the choir director on stringed instruments, a masculine of David. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and am surely distracted. Because of the voice of my enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. My heart is in anguish within me and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me and horror has overwhelmed me. I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. Behold, I would wander far away. I would lodge in the wilderness, Selah. I would hasten to my place of refuge from the stormy wind and tempest. Confuse, O Lord, divide their tongues. For I have seen violence and strife in the city. Day and night they go around her upon her walls and iniquity and mischief are in her midst. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me that I could bear it. Nor does one who hates me that has exalted himself against me that I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion and familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God and the throng. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling, in their midst. As for me, I shall call upon my God and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I will complain and murmur and he will hear my voice He will redeem my soul in peace from the battle which is against me, for they are many who strive with me. God will hear and answer them, even the one who sits enthroned from of old, Selah, with whom there is no change and who do not fear God. He has put forth his hands against those who are at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil. Yet they were drawn swords. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. But you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half their days. But I will trust in you. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for its truth. Father, thank you for difficult texts like this one. Father, when we have been wronged by those that we love. Father, when we have been wronged by those who loved us. Father, help us to learn from this text. That you are a God who hears the deep and painful cries of our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. So this morning. A very. um, A very difficult text, not in interpretation or in understanding, but how real it is. Because the experience that David has had here, if you've lived a little bit of life. You've experienced something like this. That David went through. 
And so in the first seven verses, David expresses his restlessness. He says, I am restless. And that's found there in verse two. And so David cries out and he wants God to hear him, hear me and answer me. Now, this is a common theme in the Psalms, particularly the Psalms of David, a cry for God to hear and to answer. Now, not in every case, but most of them, when you see this cry for hear me and answer me, what's actually underneath it, what's not spoken explicitly, but it's implied is, I have been calling out to you, and I don't feel as if you've heard me yet because you haven't answered me yet. Now, there are a few Psalms where there, that's just explicitly stated. Where are you, God? Why don't you hear me? Why don't you answer me? There's a few of them where that actually happens. But in most of the Psalms where that's not explicitly stated, it's implied by the cry for God to hear and to answer. Essentially, what David is saying here is, God, give ear to my prayer because I've been praying this prayer and you haven't answered it yet. Now, we'll just take a, a quick poll. Have you ever felt that way? All right, see, the voice that said no was very young. (laughs) The quick hands and nodding were from people who have a little life behind them. You don't have to live life long to begin experiencing things in your life where you start diligently calling out to God For God to intervene in whatever that thing is. Maybe it's a serious health condition. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it is some other kind of thing that just nags at you and nags at you. And the thing that you want is a good thing. It's a right thing. It's not a selfish thing. You want God to be glorified. You want his 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 his. Beauty and his perfection, his truth to be manifest. Perhaps it's a lost friend or family member and you're longing for their life to be transformed. And diligently you're coming to God day after day, night after night. God, please intervene. There's nothing that I can do to change my circumstances. Please hear me, God, and answer me. And then you wake up the next day and there's still radio silence. I've been there lots of times. Lots of times. I know several of you have been there. You find yourself curled up in a corner somewhere all by yourself, nobody around, just weeping. Because you know that you are absolutely helpless to do anything of value to change the circumstance that you find yourself facing now. And so you call out to God, God, please hear me. And it all stays the same. A lot of times in these Psalms, when there's a cry for God to hear and God to answer, when there's moaning and complaining, praise be to God that King David moaned and complained. For those of you in the room who are like, all these people just moaning and complaining all the time. They need to grow up and get, get strong. This is a weak generation. King David 
you are not as hardcore as King David. I don't care who you are and what you think about yourself. There's no story you can tell me from your life that would likely make me go, oh, wow, you're way better, dude, than King David was. (laughs) Did you kill in a nine and a half foot tall giant with a rock? No, guess what? You're already way behind the eight ball and trying to be as hardcore as King David. Like you got a lot of ground to make up already. And you know what King David did when he kept crying out to God and he kept crying out to God and he kept wanting God to hear him and God wouldn't answer him? He moaned and complained about it. That's what he did. That's what it says. I am restless in my complaint. And I'm surely distracted. Now that language of distraction there is actually the Hebrew word for moaning. Which, by the way, if that's what you're doing, you're distracted. You're not able to give proper attention to the other things that are going on in your life because your mind and emotions are so overwhelmed by the thing that is that is that you're 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 being consumed by it. And why is David feeling this way? Why does he feel that God is not hearing him? Why does he feel the need to moan and complain? Because of the voice of his enemy. The pressure that he feels from the wicked. We see that in verse 3. They're bringing trouble on him. They're holding a grudge against him. They are constantly pursuing his downfall. They are creating chaos and disorder in every aspect of his life. And what is it causing to have happen to him? What are the results of this experience that he's having with these enemies that keep bringing this pressure on him? First, his heart is in anguish. Heart in anguish is a volatile thing. The terrors of death have fallen on him. Now, in David's case, I don't think he's being overdramatic. We talked about this last time, if you're with us. He literally had people trying to kill him. The terrors of death really were falling on him. As I said last time, it had gotten so bad in David's life that he thought the better way to go was to move in with his enemies, the Philistines, than to try to stay in Israel. That, that's how awful his life was. He was like, you know, I probably got a better shot in Philistia. With all those people that they still sing that song about how I killed ten thousands of their soldiers when I killed their champion Goliath. I probably got a better shot with them of living a somewhat normal life than staying here in my own home country of Israel where I'm supposed to be the king. Like that's how bad things were for David. He had fear and trembling upon him regularly. Horror was overwhelming him. This is what David was experiencing. And and what did he desire to have happen? In verse six, oh, that I had wings like a dove. 
I would fly, fly away and be at rest. I would wander far and lodge in the wilderness. And this is a generational thing. It's very difficult because whether Hollywood means to or not, any valuable art of any kind, music, film, painting, theater, it doesn't matter, is going to find itself, even if it doesn't mean to, connecting to gospel-centric themes. Even if it doesn't mean to. If you think through all of the Disney movies that you and your kids like really, really like, and all of the Disney movies that you're kind of like, no, nah, it was just okay. And you run through the theme of the film, the ones that you really, really like, with someone overwhelmed by something broken inside of themselves who needed an external hero to make a sacrifice to deliver that person from the thing that was broken in them. Gospel, anyone? And we all look at those and go, that was amazing. And then when they try to make a movie where that's not the theme, you're all like, nah, yeah, it's kind of a flop. It's not really that great. So when I read this text, because biblical themes permeate art and music and theater and film aggressively without people even knowing it. And it was really hard for me to study this text. And again, this is generational. It was really hard for me to study this text and not come up on verse six and not think of the scene from Forrest Gump where Jenny is about to be beat near to death by her dad. And she's hiding out in the cornfield so that he won't come find her. And Forrest, her dear friend, comes to her and he, she says, Forrest, pray with me. Dear God, make me a bird so I can fly far, far, far away. And she just prays it over and over and over again. Hey, guys, that's on purpose. Forrest Gump's going straight out of Psalm 55. Because we're going to find out in a minute that the person that David is feeling this overwhelming sense of death and horror from, that he's feeling betrayed by, that he's now calling his enemy, was actually someone that was once a dear friend. Someone that he had a close relationship with. Someone that should have cared for him and should have loved him and done good to him. Not someone that should have been trying to hurt him. And if you've not seen that film, shame on you. Incredible movie. Yeah, there's clearing of throat about three rows back from here. I told somebody very near to the stage that they need to watch this film. I don't think they still have. Shame on you. I'm not naming names to protect the guilty. So, great movie. Sorry, I have to throw that out there. Now, David wants to fly away. God, give me wings like a dove. Let me be far off. Let me get out into the wilderness. Let me wander. Let me hide. Let me hasten to this place of safety, he says here toward verse 8. And then David begins to express why his heart is so broken, not just for his own suffering, but for the suffering that this has brought onto others. David has sorrow for the city. David has sorrow for Jerusalem. David has sorrow for the nation of Israel. And we see this in verses 8 through 15. He would hasten to this place of refuge. He would move from the stormy wind and tempest. And he calls for God to confuse and divide the tongues of his enemies. David is very quick, and I think rightly so, in his poetry to point out that it is the mouths of men that are the most dangerous thing. It is the mouths of men 
the speech of men that causes the greatest problems in this world. It's not the swords. It's not the battle lines. It's not. It's the words. It's the things that people say. It's a very powerful thing. And David calls for God to confuse their tongue, to confuse their speech, divide their tongues. And notice what David says he sees because of this, this language of these enemies. There's violence and strife in the city. There's iniquity and mischief in the midst of the city. There's destruction and oppression and deceit in her streets. This is what's going on because of these wicked men and their speech. And this is not me trying to be this way. But unfortunately, of late in our country, every other November, we kind of catch this vibe. America used to be marked and noted for its regular and continued peaceful transitions of power. And they haven't been quite as peaceful the last little bit. And this is not me picking a side, this is both sides. And what does it usually start with? It doesn't start with somebody throwing a rock. It doesn't start with somebody shooting a gun. It starts with somebody giving a speech. It starts with somebody writing a tweet. It starts with somebody posting a blog. It starts with the language of someone enraging people. And then what starts to fill the streets? Violence and strife are in the city. Iniquity and mischief are in her midst. Destruction and oppression and deceit are in her streets. As David's son Solomon so eloquently declared, there is nothing new under the sun. When people pursue their own self-righteous, wicked ends... I declare myself to be righteous, but this thing that I'm doing is wicked and I'm trying to draw as many people to my side as I possibly can. And I don't really care if it hurts a whole lot of other people as long as I get what I want. What fills that arena? Violence and strife, iniquity and mischief, destruction, oppression and deceit. And David calls for their confusion and silence of their speech. And then notice what he does here. And I've been alluding to this, but now it speaks to it directly. Notice what he does here. He says, he finally starts to identify where the source of the problem is. And he says that it is not an enemy that reproaches me. Verse 12. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. If it was, I could bear it. If it were, I could hide from them. I can endure someone who's legitimately my enemy hating me because that's what I expect my enemies to do. But instead, he says it was my close companion. We see this in verse 13. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God in the throng This is someone that David cared deeply about. Now, what's unfortunate for us is that this person's not named. David doesn't give a name to this person so that we can know better who this was. 
What we can do is we can rule out his very best friend, Jonathan. There's no record of them ever having any sort of issue like this. I want to give a speculation this morning. I would encourage you to go and read the text associated with this person to see if you think it is fitting. Chief story about this person is found in 1 Samuel chapters 15 through 17, though there are a few other references throughout the Old Testament. I would like to say to you that it is likely uh, Ahithophel, A-H-I-T-H-O-P-H-E-L, Ahithophel, 1 Samuel chapter 15 through 17. This gentleman was David's former advisor. He was the one that helped David navigate the great difficulties of what was happening here. And there came a break point where Ahithophel supported Absalom's rebellion rather than David. And if you know a lot about how that story goes, it was treacherous what he did. It's probably who David's talking about. Can you imagine one of your closest companions, one of your most trusted advisors, a person you consider to be a dear friend and confidant? Then they didn't just turn on you. They turned on you and gave all of the advice that they were giving you to the person who was trying to destroy you. Complete 180. Complete abandonment. Totally turning away from you completely, leaving you out there to die, essentially, is what this person did with King David. They used to worship together. They used to sing God's praises together. They would go to the house of the Lord together. They would make plans To advance the greatness of the kingdom together. To demonstrate the glory of God in the world together. And then they turned on you so aggressively. That they landed as the chief advisor in the camp of the enemy who was trying to kill you. Just like that. There was a sweet fellowship it says here that they had together. David is crushed by it. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of someone close and dear and near to you just turning on you suddenly and aggressively. But that's hard to work through. That's hard to process. That's hard to fight the root of bitterness that the scripture talks about. It's really hard to to, to come through that. This is the reason why David is crying out so diligently to God to help him. Because he recognizes, left to myself, there's nothing that I'm going to be able to do to not harbor bitterness and angst and maybe even hatred toward this person. Because I know that you call upon me, God, to love my enemies. This person who was my dear friend is now my enemy. And I want to still love them, but it's really hard for me to do that so David is broken and he's in a place of despair this is why this psalm is so hard because it's so real and it really kind of 
rocks my world a little bit when I hear people say, I wish the Bible would talk about more relevant things like relationships and stuff. And I'm like, you, you just don't read the same Bible I do. It's all over the place. I wish you would give me some information about what to do if somebody that like deeply loved me suddenly hurt me really bad and, and we've got to try to figure out a way to be reconciled. Uh, yeah. It's, it's in here. It's, it's right on this right here. This is what we're talking about. And so what does David say then? What happens here? I love this. As for me. All right. So David's going to give the answer, the response, what he knows he has to be about when this kind of thing happens. As for me. I shall call upon God. I'm going to go from preaching to meddling just for a second. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you if you've been through this. We're not even in my office for a counseling session. But we're just going to go and have one right now in front of everybody. Okay? Because that's what I do if you've been in me in those counseling sessions. I just move right to meddling and start asking a bunch of questions that you probably don't want me to ask. Because it's the only way you can get to the bottom of stuff is to get to like the truth to be out there. And to own it. So let me just go ahead and throw this challenge out there. If you've ever had this experience that David has had. Of being deeply betrayed by someone that you cared for greatly. And it's still wreaking great havoc in your life. And you're having a hard time working through it and processing it and dealing with it. Let me speculate that very likely what has happened is. You did not go to God with it. Man, the looks on faces that just, let's not have the service be light next week. Okay. That just because you got offended by that. But what did he say? As for me, I shall call upon God. The great problem with most people who are believers who experience something heart wrenching like this is that the first thing that they do is not call upon God. That's the great problem. The first thing that they do is try to figure out a way to get even. I'm going to harbor all this angst that I've got. And I'm going to figure out a way to get back at that person. Vengeance is usually the first step rather than a trusting call upon the name of the Lord. Leaving space for the vengeance of God. We don't do what David did. Friends, David legitimately had every right as the king of Israel to wage to like for real build up an army and go kill these people. And he did not do that. It's not what he did. He. Called out to God that God would convict the hearts of these people and transform them from the inside out. And he took every measure that he could for as long as he could to let these people stay alive as long as possible for God to have the most time to do the greatest amount of work in their lives. That's what David did. He called 
upon God. And the problem with most of us, notice I'm including myself in this. The problem with most of us, when we've been deeply wronged by someone, especially if that someone is close to us, is we don't call upon God. We start formulating our master revenge plan. That's what we do. And we want God, when we call on him, to bless secondhand our master planning efforts at vengeance. God, thank you that you've given me the wisdom insight to know how to wreck this person's life. Amen. That's what that's how we're praying. We may not actually pray out loud like that, but that's the cry of our heart. And notice what David wants. He says, I shall call upon God. This is what I will do. And notice as he continues. And the Lord will save me. I won't save myself. Evening and morning and at noon, I will complain and murmur. Here's that Hebrew poetic structure of repetition later that we've talked about before. And God will hear my voice and notice what he wants God to do. Notice what he plans and expects God to do when he's calling out to the Lord in the midst of this great strife. He will redeem my soul In peace from the battle which is against me. David is praying for peace. Again, I know I'm meddling. But I had to study this all week so you get the 40 minutes of having to deal with me meddling for just a second, okay? Because I got hammered all week long over this. You can get hammered for a few minutes. Notice what David is praying for. He's praying for peace. The last time, or if you're still going through the current time, something like this. Have you prayed for peace? Peace. Sometimes God accomplishes peace through the great self-sacrifice of the one who's actually innocent. That's what David did. David could have gathered up an army and he could have Stormed the city and he could have publicly executed his enemies. And he's the king. He could have he could have done all that stuff. But he laid down his rights. He laid down his privileges. He denied himself. We might could even venture to say that he took up his cross. What did Jesus do? You know, these are all about Jesus, by the way. I just want to throw that out there. What did Jesus do in the gospel? He laid down his rights, set aside his privileges. He denied himself. He took up his cross. What does he call for us to do? I want you to deny yourself. I want you to take up your cross. Jesus not only saved us in the gospel, but he gave us a model for kingdom living in the gospel. Self 
denial, sacrifice of self, denial of right and privilege for the benefit of the other, even if the other is guilty and you are innocent, because that's the point of Jesus dying on the cross. We were guilty and he was innocent and he gave his life up anyway for what? That we might have peace with God who we were enemies with. Friends, hear me this morning. How we respond to the depth and severity of these broken relationships that we experience shows the world what we actually think and believe about the gospel. Because there was no greater broken relationship in this world than our relationship with the Most High God because of our sin. And the Lord Jesus Christ came and made peace through the sacrifice of the innocent and the, the declaration of not guilty to those who were enemies of God. And then he looks at us and he says, that's how I want you to live in the kingdom. That's how I want you to live in the kingdom. And, and there's no asterisks on that. But you don't know what they did to me. Don't care. Pastorally, I do care and I want to help you walk through your hurt. But theologically, don't care. Theologically, doesn't matter. There is no asterisk excusing away this higher level of pain, this trumped level of suffering. None of us have the level of suffering that Christ had. Where the first person of the Trinity turned his face away from the second person of the Trinity and poured his wrath on him that his people who were enemies of his might now live at peace with him. The one and only truly innocent being ever, the Lord Jesus Christ, receiving in his own body the sin of fallen mankind, that we might be made right with God. Whatever it is that's happened to you pales in comparison. Theologically, I do not care what they did to you. The calling is still the same. But Philip doesn't want God, doesn't God want me to be happy? No. Yeah, it's going to be on the internet forever that I just said that. And if you go in and pull the audio out, it'll go viral. Preacher says God doesn't want you to be happy. It's because he doesn't. That's not what he cares about. God cares less about your happiness. He cares most about your holiness. Because being an image bearer is not about being happy. It's not about life being easy. Look at Jesus Christ when he came to show us the ethic of the kingdom. It was not easy. But it was holy. And he calls us to live that same kind of life. And if you don't think Jesus doesn't understand what you're going through. He called 12 guys to him to do the ministry work. Twelve close companions who he had sweet fellowship with, who went with the throng to the house to worship the Lord and to display the king. All the stuff that David talked about, this close friend of his. One of them sold him out for some silver and got him put to death. The other, while he was dying, said he didn't even know who the guy was. There was one of the twelve that stuck around long enough to see the whole thing through. And based on history, that's the foolishness of youth. He was the youngest one of the bunch. Quite possibly in his middle to late teenage years. 
No offense to the teenagers in the room, but John just didn't know any better. We all try to like pass it off like John was a superhero. and That's why he stuck around. John probably just didn't know any better. Like he's probably looking around going, I thought we were supposed to be here. Like that's the beautiful thing when you're young and just wild. You know, it's like, you're going to do what's right. You know, it's like, well, it's because you're crazy because everybody else is out because they're trying to kill us like they're trying to kill him. Everybody abandoned Jesus. He knows what you're going through. He's fully aware of the pain that you're experiencing. And why will he call upon the Lord here in this text with David? Why does he call upon God? Because God sits enthroned from of old. Friends, hear me this morning. Please do not embrace a theology where you're waiting for Jesus to be king. That's a very depressing and sad theology. You'll suffer a lot through a theology like that. The triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, three gods and yet one, have always been enthroned, are currently enthroned, and will always be enthroned. God is the sovereign God of the universe. He The declaration about Christ as the God-man is that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He has always been that way. He currently is that way and he will always be that way because he's the same yesterday, today and forever. And in the context of the scripture, when it talks about the eternality of God's character, it always includes the glorious, sovereign power of God that never wavers. Why is David calling upon God for help? Because God legitimately is the only being in existence that can most certainly help him. And friends, that's how we should pray to God when we are in these kinds of circumstances. And notice here in verses 20 through 23, as we get ready to close, the judgment that God will bring about on the enemies that have come against David and therefore have come against the covenant people of God is a just judgment. Notice midway through verse 19, it shifts from talking about God being enthroned and the Selah there gives us the break and it begins talking about these enemies and it speaks about these enemies, about how they have no change. These enemies keep violating God's will. They still don't fear God. This enemy has put his hands out against those that were at peace with him. He's violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter. His heart, but his heart was war. His words were soft like oil, but they're now like drawn swords. Notice verse 23, the declaration of the just judgment of God. But you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. That Language of pit of destruction actually most literally translates to the lowest pit. You'll put them under the full weight of your judgment. 
men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half of their lives. But I want you to notice the hope that David has quickly as we close the hope that David has verses 22 and the last line of verse 23. Notice what David says, cast your burden upon the Lord. And he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. What's interesting. What's interesting is this language for burden here in this text. And it's similar to the language that Jesus uses about my burden is easy, my yoke is light. This Hebrew notion of burden here. It's really more deeply understood as that which has already been given to you. So a lot of times we think about a burden, we think about something that's heavy and weighing us down. But in this particular context, it's less about something that's heavy and weighing us down. And it's actually more of a, of a directive about there, there are certain things that have already been given to you that are good for you, that are for your benefit, that you get to utilize, that you get to live your life in. And a lot of times you live your life in these things that have been given to you, those things that have been supplied for you as if they were always and already yours. And when those things begin to fail you, you forget that they were gifts given to you by someone else, that they never really were yours. You were just a steward of those things. That's this idea of burden here. Cast what God has already given to you. Onto the Lord and he will sustain you when we're going through these deep trials of broken relationships. A lot of times we try to lean too heavily on what we think we can already do to fix it. And we just make the situation worse. Rather than recognizing that all good and perfect gifts come from God and I will throw everything that I think that I have Onto the Lord and I will let God himself sustain me because that's what he's already doing anyways. Friend, please don't walk through this life thinking for one moment that you're sustaining yourself. The very air you breathe is supplied to you by God himself. The very capacity of your brain to tell your lungs to take that air in is supplied to you by God himself. The fact that you live another moment is a gift from God himself. Cast all that you have been given back on to the Lord and he will sustain you. And he will not allow his righteous to be shaken. That word for shaken is actually the word for tottering. 
You know those little toys the kids have that are weighted and you thump them and they go to wobbling around but they always pop back up the right direction? That's that picture. That's that picture. And sometimes when you thump that toy, because I've always tried to make it flip over. Like that was my goal in life. Like when the kids had those like, I mean like aggressively, you know. And unless you actually literally break the thing open, it will always flip back the right direction. Just will. Like you literally have to destroy the toy for it to not stand up the right way anymore. And so what it's saying here is, is that even if the world's rocking, man, it's just smacking you, smacking you. God will not allow you to be crushed in such a way that you will not stand back upright again in his strength. Because that's what the righteous do, because I'm not standing on my own two feet. The Lord God himself is causing me to stand. The ground upon which I stand is not my ground, but it is the firm foundation of the righteousness of God himself, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And no matter what tempest I find myself in, no matter what waves are crashing against me, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the firm foundation. My house is not built on sand and it will not fall. And you know what? Even after all of this this morning, as we get ready to close, even after all of this this morning, there are some of you who are hearing this and you're going, yeah, but I don't feel that way. I really feel like I'm being crushed. I really feel like I'm being knocked over. I really feel like the house is falling down. I do not feel the way that you are, 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 are speaking about this morning. I don't feel it. Good. That's awesome. It's great that you don't feel it. Because David didn't feel it either. Notice that in between the points of hope is this issue about the enemy still. Verse 23 is about God's judgment and the enemy still doing what he's going to do. And this, this is what's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. So that means the enemy is still doing the enemy's thing. Circumstances have not changed. Life is still hard. David's still living in a cave. David's still not sitting on the throne. David is still not king. Notice what he says to close at the end of verse 23. But in spite of all of that, that's that's the idea of but. Regardless of everything that's gone before, Regardless of what my circumstances are, regardless of what I'm dealing with right now, regardless of how my enemy seems to still be victorious, given that my circumstances do not seem to have changed in the least, life is still as wretchedly hard as it was before I prayed this prayer. But I will trust in you. Friends, the great error. That most Christians make, especially in our modern, western, charismatic, health, wealth, prosperity, name it and claim it religion that we have in our society. We make the mistake of believing that just because I've prayed this way to God and called out to heaven in this way, that when I wake up tomorrow, everything's got to be better. Everything's got to be different. Everything has to change. God has to fix what I told him to fix. No, he doesn't. Newsflash. 
God doesn't have to do anything. That's one of the cool prerogatives of being God. You actually are the only entity in existence that doesn't have other beings having the privilege of telling you what to do. That's that's a God perk. I can call out to God to silence the enemies, to fix the problem, to take the mischief from the streets, to heal, to give peace, to bring reconciliation. I can call out to God, call out to God. Call. I can keep calling out to God that he'll do these things and do these things. And he is not required in the least to answer positively any of those prayers. So what makes the difference? What makes the real difference in the believer's life? Hear me this morning. This is going to save you a great deal of emotional distress. The great difference in the believer's life is not the promise of changed circumstances. Philip, you have no idea, man. My marriage is a total train wreck. And you know what? If one or the other spouses doesn't repent, your marriage may stay a train wreck. Man, Philip, we got this horrible call and it's cancer. And you know what? It may stay cancer. Oh, Philip, man, I've got this kid and, and you know, they're grown now and, and we've been praying for them for years and years and years and years and years. And they, they just don't know the Lord. And we're praying that God might save them. Friend, I, God might not save them. They may die lost. There are no promises that you will get the thing that you're longing for and thus make your life easier in your mental, emotional and spiritual state. So what makes the difference? Because the text says it promises. That we won't be shaken. That we'll have a firm foundation to stand on. That we have hope beyond hope. That we have comfort beyond comfort. That we truly can live in peace. What makes the difference? The last thing that David said in the psalm. I will trust in you. And that gets muffled amens. And uncomfortable squirming in pews everywhere that it is said. Because we want, hear me this morning, friends, we're exposing our idolatry together. I told y'all this was hammering me all week. You get the 40 minutes. This exposes our idolatry. Psalms like this one. It exposes that we don't really want God and his glory We want God and his gifts. We don't want to trust God's divine providence as it stands, even if it's a frowning providence. We want God to alter his plans for our lives to fit our creature comforts. Which is idolatry of self over the worship of the glory of God. 
God, I want you to show that you care for me, not by creating an environment in my heart where I will trust you regardless of the circumstances you send my way. Even if those circumstances create a great deal of suffering in my life. No, God, I will only know that you care for me and love me if you make my pathway easy and not difficult on my feet as I walk it. That's idolatry. What makes the real difference in the believer's life is when we look into the glorious and beautiful face of God and we say, God, regardless of what you bring, regardless of what you do, regardless of how easy or difficult my life might be, regardless of if I stand under a smiling providence or a frowning providence, I will Trust you. That's what I'll do. And if I wake up tomorrow. And it's just as bad as it was today. It is the day that you have made. And I will rejoice and be glad in it. Because I trust you. And I will have joy. And I will have peace and I will have delight, not because my circumstances are easy, but because you are good. Friends, this was the cry of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to the king. Oh, great king. We cannot bend the knee. For we know that our God is able to deliver us from the fire. But even if he does not, we will not bow down to your idol. In other words, you know what they said? I will trust God. Come what may. Come what may. I will not take things into my own hands and exercise my own vengeance and plan my own revenge and try to play the role of God. I will trust God. That's what I will do. And friends, I'll just be honest with you this morning, as honest as I can be, as transparent as I can be. This is the most profoundly difficult aspect Of living in the kingdom of God. Is when you are living in a horrible circumstance. That you. Have the right. The right. To change. But in exercising that right. Would be violating the will of God. Because, friends, your rights don't always line up with God's will. And setting aside your rights, your self-idolatry, and allowing yourself to live in a measure of suffering so that you can say 
To God be the glory. Not my will, but his will be done. And friends, if you don't think that that's Jesus all over the place on that, I'd encourage you to go back and reread the garden story when he was praying about if he had to go through with the crucifixion or not. When he explained to his disciples, do you not know I could call legions of angels down right now and end this whole thing right here? He had the right to do that. King of heaven. But it was not the will of the father, not my will. But your will be done. Friends, that is the call of the gospel in our lives. To set aside our will. And to live in the will of God himself in Christ as exercised by the spirit in our lives. Even if it means that life is hard for us while we live there. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for incredibly difficult passages of scripture like this one that challenge our deepest, most rooted idolatry. Father, forgive us when we try to exercise our will rather than your will. Not our will be done, Father, but your will be done. And thank you, Father, that the Lord Jesus Christ hears us He understands us. He has experienced this with us. All experiences that we have had yet without sin. And he calls out to us. To take his yoke, take his burden, because it is light. And father, this morning, I pray that our heart cry, the heart cry of every believer here will be what David cried at the end of the psalm. But Lord, I will trust you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to-